From LA Times Studios, I'm Sarah Rodman, and this is The Real, your source for all things entertainment. On today's show, we're going to check in with the movie team. They were all over the Sundance Film Festival, and they're going to tell us about what went down in Park City. Hello. For the Los Angeles Times, I'm Mark Olson. And from that nasally wheeze in my voice, you can tell that I'm just back from Park City, Utah, on the Sundance Film Festival. I'm joined here by my colleagues. I'm Amy Kaufman. I write about celebrity in Hollywood for the LA Times. I'm Justin Chang. I am a film critic for The Times. And I'm Travell Anderson. I am the ambassador of blackness. And so the last time the four of us were together, we were sitting around the kitchen table of a rental condo in Park City, Utah at the Sundance Film Festival. And it was only one day after the festival completed that it was announced that Trevor Groth, longtime director of programming, was going to be stepping down. And so for better or worse, the 2018 edition of the Sundance Film Festival was the end of an era. And so I think it is worthwhile for us to maybe take a few moments here to sort of talk about the festival, what it is, what it means, maybe what the future of the festival might hold. So, Amy, for you, when you when you think of Sundance, like what does Sundance mean to you? Really cute snow boots. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, you know, uh, well, first of all, it's one of my favorite work experiences because it's time we all get to stay in the same condo. I mean, guys, when else would I get to stay in the same house as esteemed film critic Kenneth Turan and, and observe his yes. eating habits? He likes turkey and apples. Um, <laughs> So that's really fun. And it's also for me, I'm a fan of documentaries. And I think Sundance has um, some of the best nonfiction um, films out there. You know, they've premiered movies like Blackfish, The Cove, um, Queen of Versailles, movies that people have really gone on to talk a lot about. And this year I was stoked because there were a ton of movies about cool females um, like Joan Jett, Jane Fonda, Gloria Allred. Who else? There was Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Vivian who I did Westwood. not get to see RBG in person. But um, yeah, so you know, I think that's one of the rare places where um, a doc lover can can sort of enjoy enjoy that scene. Justin, I, you're kind of the opposite perspective. I feel like. Oh really? No, I love docs okay, too. Okay, no, okay. no, it's a great day, and I would agree with with Kenny Turan, who's uh, always said this, which is that the docs are the most interesting films there. That said, Sundance to me is is and has been just the premier showcase for new American independent cinema. I mean, I think they've upheld that reputation, that status for you know decades now, and uh, even as the definition of independent cinema sometimes keeps shifting, uh, what seemed you know, small and indie back then is kind of more mainstream and big and now, and it's especially because, you know, the kind of co-opting of festivals by awards season, which even though technically doesn't start for, you know, the next awards, well, we're still in the middle of this current one, but already people are projecting about what's going to happen at the next one. So there really isn't a break from that. And, um, and so everyone is here kind of on the lookout for those big titles that are going to pop. And now, Trevel, this this was your first time at the festival. How did you find the experience? Simply like badges and lines and getting around. Like, what was just sort of like? Were you surprised at all by simply just the logistics of the festival? What do you think it was gonna be like? By the way, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, as as a quote unquote outsider, you hear that Sundance is the place where you know all of the the year's upcoming hottest movies are going to premiere. Um, and so, getting the chance to go and be a part of that, I was excited. Um, and then, then you hear people who've been there for you know X amount of years saying it was trash this year. Um, <laughs> that being said, I mean it's 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 a big orchestration of a lot of things, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people. Um, it's kind of amazing to see how many people 
come into Park City for this, uh, mainly the, the first weekend. And traffic is a mess and people are all over the place. It's snowing. It's disgusting. It's cold as I don't know what. Um, but overall, I say, I mean, I, I think I enjoyed it um, overall. I'm, I'm still, you know, ruminating on those particular feelings. Um, but it snowed too much for my liking and it was too cold. And did it feel exciting to you to be in the room during the premiere of a movie? Like, did you feel that sort of, like, Sundance buzz? I didn't. Like, you know, I've heard the stories of films premiering in years past and there being standing ovations and it being, you know, a wondrously... Uh, wondrous moment to be in that first screening. Terrell was like really um, eager for his first standing out. He kept coming back and being I, like, where is Exactly. It? I really was. And and I only experienced one out of the entire festival. And that was when um, I saw, I believe it was Monster. Um, I believe that was the only standing ovation out of the entire time I was there. And I was there the entire 10, 11 days. Um, and so it's just, I don't know, my experience is colored by the thoughts and experience of those of you all and other folks who've been there who just feel like this year didn't bring it. I have to say, I think that's kind of refreshing. As someone who has been attending the festival for 12 or 13 years now, you get jaded by standing ovations because there's times when almost every film seems to get a standing ovation and it becomes meaningless. Amy, you mentioned the sort of female-focused documentaries that you saw at the festival. And I think there was a lot of talk this year about female filmmakers and female storytelling. And then there also was, you know, coming off of last year, there was that big women's march that happened when the last year's festival coincided with the presidential inauguration. And this year there was a respect rally, which happened on Saturday morning. And you were actually a part of, you in fact went for a ride-along with Ms. Jane Fonda, is that correct? I I got the coolest opportunity, which was to go um, in Jane Fonda's SUV um, with her posse to the Respect Rally, where she was scheduled to talk. And this happened to be in the midst of the first snowstorm of the festival. Um, So, you know, Jane was dressed appropriately. She had, like, very chic mittens on and, like, you know, obviously a wide-brim hat, which I coveted. Um, But, you know, despite the snow, a lot of people turned out, um, standing in this big baseball field to watch speakers like her and Gloria Allred and Tessa Thompson and Common um, sort of just talk about reflecting on the last year and the Me Too movement and how we keep that momentum going and actually um, organize and make something happen out of it. Thank you for being here in the cold and in the snow. Yay, Sundancers! We're still marching. We're still protesting. But now we have to also organize. I really like having sort of like a political outside moment in the middle of the festival because it we're talking about documentaries, a lot of the messaging in the in those kind of films is is brought home, I think, when you see people coming together like that. Um and no, I'm not BFF with Jane after riding along, sadly, but um it was Next pretty time. yeah, yeah. But I feel like throughout the festival, people were really responding to the moment and that there were multiple films that people would say, oh, this is the movie of the Me Too era. This is the Me Too Sundance. And I think there was, in fact, one film that really, in a sort of a low-energy Sundance, was one of the buzzier titles throughout the festival, and that was The Tale, the Jennifer Fox film. So, um, Amy, maybe I know you interviewed Jennifer, and maybe you can describe the the movie a little bit. Yeah, this is a very um, intense and moving um, feature film from Jennifer Fox, who started out as a nonfiction filmmaker. Um, basically, it it tells the story of how when she was a 13-year-old, she went to a writing camp and 
totally idolized the female instructor at the camp um, and through that instructor became friends with the running coach at the camp. And they were these two adults, took her under um, their wing, and ultimately she ended up having a sexual relationship with the running coach. Um, And for years she just told her friends like, oh, he was my first boyfriend. Like he was an older guy that I dated. He was 40 and she was 13. Um, And it wasn't until her mom, when she was 45, when Jennifer was 45, discovered this t- this story she had written um, in seventh grade about the relationship um, where she realized, oh, my God, like these details don't seem the same way to me as I interpreted them when I was a teenager. Um, and she realized it was actually a sexually abusive relationship. And so, you know, the, the extreme detail um, that the film goes into and depicting the disturbing sort of things that, that this running coach said to her and the way he treated her um, – really moved a lot of people at the festival and got people thinking about the ways in which like memory um, can warp and has to do with what's going on um, with people coming forward with Me Too. And if you guys want to see that, it's actually going to be on HBO, meaning that a lot of the listeners here don't even have to leave their house um, to see it, which is a super interesting. Like, Mark, have you ever seen how many movies actually go to HBO out of the festival? I mean that as far as like as an acquisition, I think that's that's very rare, and it's and it's interesting coming off of last year when the grand jury prize winner, I don't feel at home in this world anymore, came into the festival already with a deal with Netflix, and so I think the and so it was on available on Netflix like barely a month after the festival had ended. The fact that it seems like the tale is not going to get a traditional theatrical release, so even even in the awards space, it's going to be an. Emmy's movie, not an Oscars movie. I mean, so it's interesting where I think for people who have been in the independent space for a long time that suddenly, you know, all these ideas of like what is a movie even is being redefined in a way. And a lot of it's being driven by audiences, by the way that people want to get their movies, their cinema. I had a fascinating conversation with a, a, a film critic that I, I I very much admire at the festival who, I, you know, I, I was asking about how do you feel about the fact that it seems like the theatrical experience, the cinema experience as we love it, as we enjoy it, seems to be something on the way out. And this person did not like bemoan that was not mourning that just felt like people they people don't have the money and they don't have the time and so mm-hmm. it, it's not for us to like want to force people to like into these theaters to see movies in ways they don't want to like i think that like the cinema has to respond in a way that the people want to so that it stays this like vibrant lively thing so i think you know the tale going to hbo it, it, it feels a little funny but then i think also if it gets that movie to more people in a quicker, more direct way. How is that a negative? And we're going to continue this conversation on Sundance past, present, and future after we take this short break. Call Me By Your Name is set in the summer of 1983 when precocious 17-year-old Elio, played by Timothy Chalamet, is spending the days with his family at their 17th century villa in Lombardy, Italy. He soon meets Oliver, played by Army Hammer, a handsome doctoral student who's working for Elio's father. Amid the sun-soaked splendor of their surroundings, Elio and Oliver discover the beauty of awakening desire that will change their lives forever. <laughs> Elio, Oliver. Oliver, Elio. How you doing? Nice to meet you, Elio. You must be exhausted. A little bit. <laughs> come, come, come. May I bring your things up to your room? Uh, sure, yeah. My room? <laughs> Follow him. You're very welcome here. See, si. Our home is your home. 
pre-order Call Me By Your Name on iTunes Movies. And we're back. And so I wanted to be sure that we we talk a little bit about kind of Sundance and award season. I mean, both in the the sense of what from this year we may still be talking about this time next year, but also simply the fact that you know the for us as working journalists, the Oscar nominations happen while we're in Sundance, and so that creates this kind of oddball day where we're waking up earlier than any of us would like. We're like sitting at our laptops all together and then sort of scattering with various various assignments and things. Um, maybe. Justin, do you want to talk a little bit about, do you think there are any films from the 2018 crop of Sundance titles that we may still be talking about come award season for 2019? I hope so, although I wouldn't be so sure as to make any bold predictions at this point. Um, I mean, I thought something like Tamara Jenkins' Private Life, a film I know you admire as well, Mark, mm-hmm. um, was absolutely terrific. And I think Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti both give really terrific, totally awards-worthy performances. And Jenkins' screenplay. Jenkins' screenplay, Jenkins directed. Um, I, you know, there was a lot of debate about this movie over whether it's too long, just because it's 132 minutes, and it goes very deep into just the agonies and the frustrations of a couple's uh, struggle with infertility, uh, which to me is, uh, I think 132 minutes is actually too short to explore a topic as rich and complex as that. So again, I think some assumptions being made sometimes based on subject matter, based on, you know, about uh, what constitutes the appropriate length for a movie. Netflix has that film. So again, it faces that potential struggle uh, the way that, um, you know, Mudbound did, although Mudbound, you know, came away with some Oscar nominations this year. So who knows? Um, It depends on just if critics rally around it, if enough people see it. Um, I really liked Deborah Granick's new film, Leave No Trace, uh, which is, again, we've, you know, to address the, the, the matter of a quiet, you know, a quiet festival, a quiet movie, this is a quiet movie and it's a great movie. And I don't think quiet is, uh, should be shorthand for, you know, bad or uninteresting. I mean, uh, Ben Foster and uh, plays um, a PTSD affected army veteran who's living this nomadic existence with his teenage daughter played by, uh, oh, I'm going to, Thomason McKenzie, I believe is her name, Thomason Harcourt McKenzie. Uh, Deborah Granick uh, was here with Winter's Bone like nine or ten years ago, and that movie, you know, really, really got her career off the ground, launched Jennifer Lawrence's career, came away with a slew of Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. This film, uh, I think, I actually think it's every bit as good as that one. Uh, I don't think it's going to get quite the same impact because it's it, it feels a little smaller and and more modest, but um, but I hope it does. It's beautiful filmmaking. Can I just say, though, that there's nothing more I hate than being in a screening, turning on my phone right after it's over, and seeing, like, 900 tweets that are like, Joaquin Phoenix, like, definitely getting an Oscar nomination. It's like, <laughs> bro, reel it in. We are in January. I get that there's a lot of great movies typically coming out of Sundance, but this rush to anoint something as like the next best picture winner, it drives me nuts. It feels more about the person tweeting than about the quality of the movie. And I, it's fine to express that you love something, but like, why does it have to be, you know, categorized as one of the five people who are going to get a nomination or the 10 movies that are, it's just like, 
it's so dumb. And I'm almost glad that there wasn't that this year because the that it made the, the few There ones were some, I, though, about that. I think it was about that very movie you were referencing, too. Yeah, Don't worry. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry out there. For, you know no, you know who you are, but you do that all the time. But I hate that, too, Amy. I think it's a really – and, you know, it's it's kind of grotesque, especially when – I God, I remember – and it's not just at Sundance. I remember when, like, 12 Years a Slave, which, yeah, naturally now in retrospect looks like Oscar bait, right? And it's like people were saying, there's your best picture from a race over. And it's like that's so trivializing when you're talking about a movie that's, you know, what is this movie about? It's about slave. Let's, can we focus about what the movie's about first for five minutes before we get on that train? It's true. Um, well, well, one thing I thought was so interesting this year was, especially in the in the U.S. Dramatic Competition, that there were so many strong female lead performances that in movies where it's maybe hard to imagine the movie kind of going all the way or becoming really like sort of an award season contender, but yet these just powerful, powerful performances. I mean, obviously, Laura Dern in The Tale, Andrea Riseborough in Nancy... Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Kindergarten Teacher, where she plays a, a, a woman who becomes obsessed with whether or not one of her students is a poetry prodigy. I mean, these were just really complicated, interesting performances that you were seeing in these movies that maybe the whole movie wasn't what people wanted necessarily, but just you couldn't deny how strong these performances were. And Mark, I want to throw in off of that, um, Tony Collette in Hereditary, which was programmed in the Midnight section. Tony Collette gives this outstanding emotionally intricate, completely just terrific performance in one of the better horror movies I've seen recently. And I think a lot of people were buzzing, you know, and, and in some ways to that, it's not just, I mean, some of it is perhaps manufactured empty hype, but part of it I think is to combat the sort of uh, marginalization of horror movies and, and of genre, you know, and say like, hey, this is a genre movie and it features really, really worthy work that should not be forgotten, um, uh, you know, a year from now. And Travel, did you were there any performances that really stood out for you? Do you want to plant a flag for anybody that you saw? Um, I wanna shout out um like I said, my my I think my two favorite movies um are Monster and Monsters and Men. Yeah, and so Monster, it's a adaptation of a book by Walter Dean Myers, iconic book that I read in high school that basically follows this 17-year-old boy um who is accused of being the lookout for a robbery in which a store owner was killed. And so the story is about his uh, transformation in the trial along with that it stars Kelvin Harrison Jr., uh, Jennifer Hudson, ASAP Rocky, Jeffrey Wright, a lot of amazing people, a lot of great performances. Anthony, you and I spoke a little bit about um, how the film can can stoke conversation and how it, you want it to be a conversation piece. Can you talk a little bit more about what that conversation looks like in your head? When you have a film that deals with this idea of can one moment define your whole life, you know, and, and looking at a 17-year-old kid who sits in jail who's defending his innocence against a very tough system, a system that, that doesn't look at, at social scenarios, it's, it's black ink written on white paper, a system that has proven to, over decades and decades, to be, you know, tilted and incredibly, let's say, racist against young black males. The conversation comes from that. The conversation comes from how do we better look at laws, how do we better look at, at at the way we charge people, how do we better look at sort of, you know, dealing with social pressures? My job was to make a film that people talk about and talk about these ideas. Coming out of last year, there ended up being this sort of extraordinary number of films that stayed in the conversation and have played a big part in award season. Obviously, 
Get Out was a surprise screening at the festival last year and sort of began that sort of like stealth momentum that I think it's had all year long. Call Me By Your Name, Mudbound, The Big Sick. Those are all films that, you know, I think it's surprising to have one Sundance that has that many movies that are are still coming around. I think it was 16 Oscar nominations for films out of Sundance and then included three of the five Best Documentary nominees premiered at Sundance last year. And so specifically with maybe Call Me By Your Name, and and Mudbound. What do you think it is about those movies that's really sort of like hung around for people? Um, well, I think with Call Me by Your Name, it's it's a it's a it's an emotionally like tugging story. It tugs at, at your heartstrings, no matter whether you're gay, straight, whatever in between. Um, we all have that experience of like first love and being rejected by said first love and all of that. Um, it's also a beautifully shot film. Michael Stuhlberg gives a, a very good performance. Timothy Chalamet is amazing. Army Hammer in, is in it, and he's amazing as well. Um, so I think I think it's just that emotional thing that that pulled on people. Um, and then Mudbound specifically. I mean, I think it hasn't gotten enough attention as as it should have gotten in this particular award season. But I'm glad that Mary J. Blige at least is is the the shining star of it um, in terms of her nominations. Um, but I think with that one, it's just a it. Similarly, it's a it's a it's a story that is very relevant to our times. It has a lot of this conversation around racism and and white supremacy and that particular experience and how it manifests itself in our everyday lives. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I just think it deserves a lot more, particularly for, for D. Reese, the writer-director. Well, I was particularly excited that, that D. did get a nomination for Adapted Screenplay. And so as much as it would have been just unbelievable to see her nominated in the Best Director category that I think the fact that now she is Oscar nominee D. Reese, right. you, you can't take mm-hmm. that away from her. Very much so. But uh, I think just in a broader conversation about where the Academy is and, and what might potentially be recognized, um, I hope we as the journalists and the people writing about it stop saying that another type of a certain film can't win because Moonlight won or or that Oscar So White is over because Moonlight won or whatever the case may be. Like, we, we are part of the problem um, in all of that. One of the more dispiriting things that I heard was apparently some Academy voters saying, you know, when asked about Call Me By Your Name and Get Out, this like, oh, we did that last year. Like, what is that even like? Oh, Ugh. we gave it to a black film. We gave it to a a, a gay film. It's like almost like, and it, it almost sort of is like, oh, we scratched off, we we checked off two diversity boxes, and it's which yes. is so offensive. I think. I mean, call me by your name is not Moonlight, is not Get Out. And it's like, but now, I mean, do you really the, believe it's so that obvious somebody really out. said that? Like, I I often think that these you know anonymous Oscar voters are just figments of fellow journalists' imagination. I like sadly don't think that's true. I think people are that. Yes. And horrible. It's kind of like yes. it's a more it's a much more malignant form of like, oh, well, we gave it to the journalism movie with spotlight, so we won't give it to the post this year. But now it's like thinking in terms of, you know, uh identity politics, I guess, is is you know not the greatest way to put it. But um But that's exactly but people feel yeah. that way. They people truly do feel that way and they feel like, oh, we 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 did that thing last year. Let's either revert back to what we know or let's highlight performances from folks who we've we've known for so long. Like why why like Daniel Kaluuya getting a nomination um is a surprise to literally everyone. And to me it shouldn't be because I thought his performance was amazing. 
it true. I mean, I hope people don't think that way because that would mean that like if Ryan Gosling were to have been in a movie this year, you know, he couldn't have won again. And yeah. I, I would, I for one, am really missing his presence <laughs> on the award season. I like how you just made him a winner, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, La La bypass general, nominee entirely. General sweep. I feel was a reflection of him. Well, I think what all of this really points to is that with all the changes that are happening in the membership of the Academy, all the new members that are being brought in, you know, we have some idea of what those percentages are, but we don't really know, like, are they moving the needle or not? And so I feel like for us as media people, as just sort of observers of award season, we're in this really kind of amazing and uncertain space where for all the years that everybody thought this was like a plug and play thing where you knew what was going to happen, you knew what an Academy film was supposed to be. And now I kind of have no idea. I don't know what any of this stuff means anymore. And I kind of am confused and a little upset about that, but then also like really excited by it. I think that's it's like the a, way it should be. I think it makes it for much more exciting. Like it allows different and different perspectives, different types of filmmakers, this different everything, the chance to say, I'm an Oscar nominee, and that that's what it should be. And so we're going to continue to have these conversations through the rest of award seasons. We try to figure out what is or is not the sort of contemporary award space. So uh, for the Los Angeles Times, I'm Mark Olson, joined by my colleagues. I'm Amy Kaufman. Find me on Twitter at AmyKNLA. I'm Justin Chang. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin C. Chang. I'm Travel Anderson, and you can follow me at Travel Anderson. And again, I'm Mark Olson. You can follow me on Twitter at IndieFocus. Thanks so much for listening. Well, that's it for today's show. So be sure to download and subscribe to The Real on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, I'm Sarah Rodman. To get these and many other award-nominated films, go to iTunes.com slash Oscars.